everybody. Nice to have you here. It's Thursday night. Uh, good to see you. Um, what, you know, this was weird, but maybe not unexpected. And yet, with all the answers, I still have a whole lot of questions about what happened to those three men in Kansas City after they watched their beloved Kansas City Chiefs play. It was like three plus weeks ago, right? Almost a month. And finally, what we've been waiting for has arrived, but I don't think it gave us all the answers. The toxicology reports reportedly say, I have to say that because we couldn't get our hands on them, but the tox reports, according to a source with the families, suggest that it was drugs and it was a massive quantity of fentanyl that at least was found in the bloodstreams of those three dead men. Did it kill them? I don't know. It's a massive and like more than lethal amount, but did it kill them? Or did it put them in a state where they didn't notice the weather? Well, that sounds weird, but I'm from Winnipeg, so you know what? That can happen. You can freeze to death if you just get a little too out of it. Did that happen? Who gave them the drugs? Did they bring the drugs? Did they have the drugs? Why was that not illegal enough for this to be a crime scene? Why was there all sorts of stuff left behind that could have been investigated but was not. Could this be a felony murder? This is not hyperbolic, folks. If you break the law and you commit a felony and people die as a result, that is the definition, textbook, of felony murder. So with that as a possibility, how the hell was this not a crime scene? And it still isn't. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then, of course, another really important thing, and that is that if there's a batch of coke out there that's got a bunch of fentanyl in it that can kill three very large men all at the same time, I hope Kansas City folks are being real, real careful. Talk about that in a moment. Then there's also this, like, just unbelievably grisly and bewildering story. Pennsylvania, um, young man in his 30s, definitely troubled, warning signs for years. But did anybody really think that he would murder his father, decapitate his father, and then parade his father's head like a trophy on the internet for unsuspecting people who can never, ever get over what he did. There's so much more to this story that we are discovering about this man, his background, and then what happened at the crime scene. Because don't forget, it was the mom, it was his mother who came home to the family home to find the head of her husband in one room, the body of her husband in another. The cops who came out, they had quite an expression on their face. We are going to talk to the man who was there and saw everything uh, and knows what happened with mom after all of this. And then um, this is kind of like, it's uncharted territory. We'll break a new ground here. We've had school shooters before. We've had mass shooters before. We've just never had a mom and a dad of a mass or a school shooter show up in a courtroom before. We've all wanted it at times, right? Like, where were the parents is one of the first things you say when a kid shoots up a school and kills a bunch of people. But when Ethan Crumbly did it, it happened. Mom and dad got hauled into court. And mom was on the stand today. There were crocodile tears like crazy. She could barely look at the video when she was forced to watch her son gun down all those kids in school. Then she took the stand and had to answer some really tough questions. You're going to hear all about it. And then I want you to weigh in. Should this be involuntary manslaughter? Should they go to prison for 15 years? 
That's the age of their kid who did it. 15. Maybe karma? Could be. So let's start here. Um, we thought it might be. We figured what else could it be? The whispers were everywhere. How could it not be? And tonight we know the answer. It more than likely was. The toxicology reports have been released to the families of those three Kansas City Chiefs fans who were found dead and frozen in the friend's backyard. And the blood tests say that they likely died from a massive overdose of fentanyl. So says an anonymous source connected to the families. The parents and the siblings of David Harrington, Ricky Johnson and Clayton McGinney apparently receiving phone calls from detectives today who broke the tragic news. According to our family source, all three victims had traces of cocaine and fentanyl and small amounts of THC. That's weed. That was in their blood when they were autopsied. Those toxicology reports were supposed to be weeks away, but they were sped up significantly. We didn't expect this today. Families didn't either. We asked the police, what's the deal? They aren't commenting. Not to me, not to you, the public. But they are saying this, and it's kind of one of those official quotes. I'll just go ahead and read it. Uh, there has been no additional details of this case revealed to any media, nor are there plans to at any time. The case remains an ongoing death investigation. Both KCPD, that's Kansas City Police Department, the detectives and the Platte County Prosecutor's Office, they've been in touch with the deceased men's families and remain in contact with them as the investigation unfolds. Pretty sanitized, it's pretty nothing. But the news of the toxicology reports, that really does help to solve one piece of the puzzle. And that's how the men maybe died that night after watching the Chiefs football game with their friend Jordan Willis at Jordan's house. The only thing is it does not answer how the bodies stayed frozen out there in the backyard for two full days unnoticed by Jordan Willis, who was home the whole time. I've heard of drug benders before, but asleep for 48 hours straight? Not usually. Usually you gotta pee. You gotta get some water. Maybe a snack. And by the way, if you're going for a snack, the kitchen window faces right out on that yard. Big window, right at the sink. The answer we still don't have either is how Jordan just overlooked three dead men in his backyard if he did at all pass by any of those windows. Eight big windows that all face out back. And it still doesn't answer how the cops decided that there's no crime here. Nope, nothing to see here. Let's just close it up. Let him back inside to do whatever he wants to do in there. Possessing and distributing and then consuming Drugs like that, that is felony. And when you're in the commission of a felony, if three men die, that's, uh, that's what you call criminal exposure. Textbook felony murder. Did they even investigate that? Did they think about it? Did they contemplate it? Because if they did, how did they just leave one of the victim's backpacks at the scene? Inside the backpack were the victim's keys and the victim's wallet. And are you ready for this? Two pill bottles. Two pill bottles inside that backpack, not touched, not confiscated. Like, how am I even saying this? I want to turn now to News Nation's national correspondent, Alex Capriello. He's live in Kansas City tonight. I'm kind of losing my mind on this one, Alex. You know, I, I fully expected we were going to hear something about drugs in the toxicology report. That was not a surprise to me. 
But at the same time, I didn't expect to hear from the victim's stepmom last night and hear that there were pill bottles inside a backpack that the police did not even bother to take. What are you hearing on the scene at this point? Look, I can tell you that this was unexpected, not just for us, but also for the family members. Think about this. I've been knocking on doors, including the medical examiner's office, asking them, look, are you guys going to expedite this toxicology report? And basically they told me point blank, no, uh, this case is no different than anyone else that comes across our desk. But something must have happened. Something must have changed. Maybe it was that meeting with the Platte County prosecutor, because now all of a sudden we are seeing an expedition of this case. All of a sudden, preliminary toxicology reports are coming into the families, and they now know at least a portion of the story, which is inside of the bloodstream of those three men, was fentanyl, cocaine, and THC. We don't know the actual specifics, the levels that might have been in that bloodstream. Certainly, it was enough to go beyond, well beyond the lethal dosage. Uh, But again, the actual toxicology reports are not in the hands of the families at this point. It's in the hands of the detectives, and they have not turned that over yet. But at least the Kansas City Police Department decided that we need to give these folks some answers at least, so that way they can get some closure. Right now, preliminary results. Obviously, we're asking for that toxicology report so we can get those details and we can report the official cause of death. But that still could take several more weeks. Yeah, and you would think that the families, I mean, it's one thing to get a phone call from the detective, right, to, to tell you here's what we can, you know, finally reveal. It's another thing to get your hand on the autopsies and, and you and your lawyer can go over them right. and decide what the next step is, like maybe wrongful death lawsuits, you know, like that's something entirely possible. I'm curious, Alex, I'm not going to suggest for a minute that you have been able to dig into the digital files of all of these people, the party guests, Jordan Willis, etc. That's likely something that is tightly held by, by the police. But is that a, is that a mine that, that should be looked at at this point? The fact that maybe there was a whole bunch of chit-chat between all the guys before they came over for the visit to Jordan Willis's house pertaining to what they might be bringing with them for fun, party favors. I think that's a great question. I think that if this does move to criminal prosecution, certainly phone lines and text messages, Facebook messages, social media chats, that's all going to be closely examined. Obviously, we heard yesterday from the cousin of Clayton, Caleb, who said that this was just a normal activity that happens when surrounded by Jordan, uh, that he is known to manufacture and distribute drugs to his friends uh, for recreational purposes was that uh, line of thought. Uh, But certainly I think the families, when speaking to them, they're not against criminal prosecution, but only if it actually is deemed to be criminal behavior uh, in terms of maybe passing out these drugs, which ultimately led to their deaths. They're not saying, they're not pushing for that. Yesterday, it was mostly about just, look, we want answers. We're hoping to get those answers. And if it leads to criminal prosecution, great. Uh, But I think, honestly, that meeting with the Platte County prosecutor is probably what expedited this toxicology report, because now, all of a sudden, the Kansas City Police Department, the medical examiners are seeing real action being taken by these victims' families, and they're hustling it along. Yeah, I mean, I smell a wrongful death suit, probably three uh, wrongful death suits at this point from the three different families. Listen, I can't imagine what they're going through, because it's bad enough to lose your loved one suddenly. And then it is brutal to lose your loved one and not have answers. And I can't even for a moment fathom what it's like to do that in the national spotlight and then to get this call and this to be in the national spotlight. Are any family members sort of 
you know, talking about the effects of this on them. I mean, I just would imagine that they're grieving privately, but has anyone said anything? You know, what's interesting is I think this brings a sense of relief. Yesterday, when speaking to them, they said, we just want to know that people are looking into this, that this is an actual investigation, and that we don't have the answers, but at least someone's looking for the answers. And so when answers did come today to their doorstep, to their phones, uh, I think that was a relief. Oh, my gosh, now we sort of are getting closer to the answers that we've all looked for. That being said, I don't think, uh, at least the family members that I spoke to, it was much of a surprise. I think just about everyone uh, had the idea that drugs were the main contributor here, if it's not the only contributor, it's at least one of them. And so I don't think that there is necessarily a sense of surprise, but I do think that there is a sense of relief knowing that it's coming to a close. Alice Capriello, as usual, great job out there. Thank you for this. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. As Alex continues to dig on that story, no evidence of foul play, quote unquote. Police said that from the beginning. Right? The deaths of these three men are, quote, 100% not being investigated as a homicide. Their words, not mine. That house was never processed as a crime scene. And yesterday we learned right here on this show that the belongings of the victim, Ricky Johnson, those were left behind in the house. When they took Ricky's body out, presumably on a gurney, his backpack was left inside. And inside that backpack, uh, keys, his wallet, and pill bottles. Here is what Ricky Johnson's mom told me yesterday. There were personal belongings of Ricky Jr.'s that uh, you were able to retrieve, but that the police never did. What, what were those belongings? They were his um, wallet, his car keys. He had some uh, antacids, uh, ibuprofen, and it was in a backpack. That backpack was still so- in the house, in Jordan's house. Ricky, Ricky Jr.'s backpack was still in Jordan's house. The police did not retrieve it. No, they did not. And furthermore, Ricky's brother told Chris Cuomo that the bag was handed back to the family by a mutual friend. So, chain of custody gone. If illegal drugs were the reason that these three men died, how was there not a more thorough investigation. How did Jordan himself survive the party that night when three others died? Is Jordan at real risk of being charged with felony murder? Want to bring in Phil Waters. He's a retired homicide detective with the Houston Police Department. He's investigated more than 400 homicide cases. It's the first thing I thought of, Phil, was felony murder. If someone dies while someone is in the commission of a felony, you can be charged with murder, and in many states it is death penalty. So I'm just, I'm just sort of flummoxed by the idea that this, this house was not a crime scene. Does any of it make sense to you? Well, good evening, Ashley. It's been a while. It's good to be back with you. Uh, I, I will tell you from the beginning of this thing, I mean, this happened, what, about three weeks ago? And I'm a little surprised at the um, uh, this uh, call for these answers to be immediate. In the fast food world we live in here, it's like uh, they want the the, uh, the 43 minutes of a television show with no commercials, and it just doesn't work that way. Uh, it's a tragic, tragic scene. I don't know that it wasn't secured uh, by those officers that responded. There is a video out that uh, 
purportedly shows that uh, they had Willis in custody at the time that they arrived. I've also read where another person that was going to the scene approached it. There were police everywhere, and there was some caution tape, to use their term, around the house. So that would indicate to me that there was some sort of crime scene tape causing a barrier, which would indicate that they have secured the scene. Now, as far as what was recovered there and so forth and so on, we won't know that until we we understand what law enforcement presents to us as to what they recovered. In terms of a felony... But but wait, because we do, we absolutely know at this point that, you know, as as Ricky Johnson was dead and frozen out in the backyard that we're looking at right now, his backpack was sitting in that home. And when Jordan Willis, the owner, moved out because he was under so much scrutiny, he went off into hiding and now he's in rehab. Um, The backpack was still there. It, It was another connection, another family friend that, that brought Ricky's backpack out of that home and over to his family to reunite his belongings with his family. And I just can't for the life of me figure out if you have three dead men mysteriously in the backyard uh, and you've cuffed the homeowner and then uncuffed him and taken him downtown to question him, how would you not process that scene a little more carefully? How would you not take a backpack of one of the victims and notice two bottles that have pills in them, one antacid and ibuprofen, maybe, I don't know. I don't know, and no one will never know, because no one bothered to look. Well, and I don't either. I mean, I wasn't there. So I don't know if there were pictures taken and they felt like that that was good enough. Uh, I don't know. But uh, wouldn't be good I, I for guess- a felony murder case, would it, Phil? Honestly, like it would not hold muster in a felony murder case, right? Because somebody would say, well, I want to test those pills. You know, I, so I can't. Sorry, away. we left them in the house. <laughs> We we are so far away from a felony murder case with this thing that uh, are that's we? not. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is look. I tell you what. What needs to happen here, in my view, and I'm looking at this through the eyes of a homicide cop. I'm not looking at it, you know, with with any particular. Uh, you know, I've got no dog in the fight in that sense. Yeah. Uh, what I'm looking at here is we've got we have a scene. We have three dead bodies in the backyard. And the, the circumstances under which they're there is what's in question. Now, we've got this tox test that we've not been given the official results. But if, if we're talking about a mixture of cocaine, fentanyl, uh, THC, they were smoking dope. And, and I don't know if there's ethanol, uh, alcohol involved in this thing or not. But a lot of these drugs, a lot of these uh, narcotics that are taken cause the body to heat up in an abnormal way. And what do people do when that happens? So they move outside. outside. They go outside. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I was asking if the bodies had their clothes removed because that was another big question. I I have to wrap it there, Phil, but I think you're on to something with that. I think you're on real quick. Well, I've seen this mostly with MDMA, with methylene dioxymethamphetamine ecstasy. Uh, where the body heats up and people will take their clothes off, run out in the dead of winter to get cooled down. So I don't know if that's what happened here. So my question is, these are grown men celebrating the Kansas Kansas City Chiefs game. They want it. They're really celebrating. And they're doing it in this They ingested this stuff voluntarily. They got outside. So my question here is, were they dead as a result of what they took, or did they 
pass out right. because of the intoxication and they froze because to death. It, yep. And, and, that's and that we don't know. And you're right. Autopsy is going to bring that. And we are waiting for that. That's why no one says they froze to death. We don't know that. No one says they OD'd. We don't know that. Could be a combo. I got to leave it there. Phil Waters, uh, thank you. Appreciate it. As always, you've got such great wisdom. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. You too. We'll see you again, too. Still to come, it is a bewildering case out of Pennsylvania. What drove a young man to kill and decapitate his own father and then parade his dad's head all over YouTube? And worse yet, what did his mom go through after discovering her husband's severed head and body in the home? What did the cops go through processing that grisly scene? The reporter who watched this happen saw these cops as they came out is with me next. thousand people who came upon Justin Moan's YouTube video on Tuesday night. That is something, dear Jesus, they are just never, ever going to be able to unsee it. And they may struggle with that for the rest of their lives, in fact. PTSD because of that. Uh, it is not every day that a man cuts off the head of his own father and then presents it to the world for clicks. That's what happened in Levittown, Pennsylvania. And one by one, viewers saw that bloodbath before YouTube finally and mercifully pulled it down hours later. But as traumatizing as what that YouTube video showed, it was absolutely nothing compared to what that poor victim's distraught wife had to go through on that night. She came home to find um, her husband's head in a kitchen pot on the first floor bedroom. And the rest of his body was in the first floor bathroom, not far away. Just imagine that for a second. And now imagine the officers who also had to come to that house to go through the scene and pull evidence out, investigate it. Whatever his reason, Justin Moan held up his father's head on camera, ranting that his father was somehow a traitor because he worked for the Army Corps of Engineers. He was a government employee for 20 years. And when he was done, police say he stole his father's car and drove 100 miles before they tracked him down and locked him up tight. He's now facing a murder charge. This was his mugshot. I don't think he's aware at this point, really, how serious things are. Not in that mugshot, anyway. He's facing murder. He's facing abuse of a corpse, among other charges, for what happened to his 68-year-old father. By the way, that father's name, Michael Moan. Everybody said he was a really nice guy. Like, really nice. My next guest was there last night, just as the officers were emerging from that repulsive murder scene. Tom Sofield is a reporter and publisher of the LevittownNow.com. Tom, thanks again for uh, coming back to the program. So take me to the scene last night as you were outside the house and you watched as these officers went in and then saw what they saw and then came out. Sure. Thanks for having me on again, Ashley. Um, in this case, definitely one of the, the worst I've ever covered or seen. Uh, and for me, it all started out uh, just past 7 o'clock. I received a tip from a, a source, a trusted source, that there was a call of a possible beheading um, in the Levittown section of Middletown Township. Seemed a little off to me. Um, in 13 years in journalism, I've never covered a beheading. I don't know if our county's seen one in the past 50 years. Um, I waited a minute at the office uh, thinking maybe it was someone in a mental health crisis or a false police call. 
And then we started to hear that um, the detectives were called in and the command staff was being notified. And I arrived about 25 minutes after the initial dispatch. And at the scene, um, you could immediately tell it wasn't a normal crime scene. Uh, the police officers, all very somber, which they usually are in a homicide, but even more so this time. As things started to develop, more people showed up. Uh, you could you could see the look on their faces. They were shell-shocked. Uh, and later in some further reporting, uh, we uncovered that the initial 911 call was for a bloody scene in the bathroom of the house on Upper Orchard Drive. And the wife of the victim, um, she ended up finding her husband's body in the blood. And then it was reported to a dispatcher that he was decapitated and didn't have a head. Um, and I'm sure the toughest thing she'll ever see, and I'm sure for so many of those officers, one of the roughest experiences they've so, had. And, and, and they've seen some bad things, I'm sure. And they've seen some, yeah, they've seen the worst. I, I look at these pictures of the family together. They just look so happy and adjusted. And, you know, he's got um, an older sister over there on the left and a brother there in the middle and his mom right there. Uh, and they all apparently live together. I'm going to have to just wrap this quickly, but can you just give me the rundown of what, did you see the mom come out of the house? Do you know where the siblings are? She was already gone. Uh, but one thing that was interesting was seeing this unfold in real time. Uh, there were police there. I was there as they started getting text and, and getting the video that was circulating on YouTube. Uh, and I, I heard them talk about when he was being located at the fort and that search was ongoing. And I guess kind of in this age of instant everything, um, everything was unfolding right in front of them, which I'd never seen anything like this at a crime scene. Uh, it was just unfolding fast. People were talking about the video. Nobody knew what was going on. Uh, and, and the police, to their credit, really quickly did get a, a grasp on it. But just a massive undertaking uh, with the nature of the crime and the fact that uh, Justin Moan was two hours away when he was arrested. And this video was spreading like wildfire all over the Internet and especially in the community. Mm. Oh, this poor family. I just cannot imagine. I know that they've got a... A press conference scheduled for tomorrow. Um, we'll give you a call. We'll see what uh, what comes out of the. I feel like we. I feel like we know almost everything we need to know, except for the the, the why. You know how someone can be that sick. Tom, thank you for this. We'll call you again. Thank you. Tom Sofield uh, doing just terrific news for the um, Levittown. Um, LevittownNow.com. Coming up next, a nation watches as history unfolds in a Michigan courtroom. Their son shot up a school, killing four kids, but for the first time ever, mom and dad are being tried for the crime. Were they horrible parents? Yes. Should they be jailed for what their son did? Well, maybe you want to wait till you see mom in court. That's next. Jennifer Crumbly is not a murderer. That is a fact. She's a 45-year-old mother of an only child from a suburb of Detroit. But if prosecutors get their way, she is going to go to prison for what her only son did. Ethan Crumbly, 15 years old at the time, brought a 9mm handgun to his high school and he killed four kids ages 14 to 17, shot them dead. He shot seven other people, too, who survived. One of them was a teacher. Ethan ultimately pleaded guilty, and he's going to die in prison unless you know, he's able to win an appeal. 
His mom and dad, however, may also be headed to prison because they are being tried separately for involuntary manslaughter. Prosecutors say James and Jennifer Crumbly share the blame for that school shooting, for not paying attention to their son and his broken mental state, for buying him a gun while he's in that mental state, and for brushing off a universe of red flags that all pointed to danger looming. Jennifer Crumbly took the stand, but not before she sobbed and sobbed through the video that was played in open court of her only son wantonly shooting up his high school. I want you to hear, though, and see her on the witness stand telling her story, especially the part where she says that she wishes her son had killed her and her husband instead of the kids. In some of the messages the prosecution admitted, you say that you failed as a parent. Do you feel, are you a failure as a parent? I don't think I'm a failure as a parent, but at that time, um, I guess I didn't see, I felt bad that Ethan was sad at those things, and I guess I just, I don't know, I just felt like I failed somewhere. I don't, I only know how to describe it. At that point in time, I just, I just kind of felt like somewhere I failed. Do you believe there was anything, um, do you believe that you knew or had reason to know your son was a danger to anyone else? No. Um, as a parent, you spend your whole, your whole life trying to protect your, your child from other dangers. Um, you, never, you never would think you have to protect your child from harming somebody else. That's what, that's what blew my mind. I was just... That was the hardest thing I had to stomach is that my child harms and kill other people. Do you believe there were things you were thinking at the time, I should do this, but I'm not doing it? Do you look back and think that? No, I don't. I mean, I of course I look back after this all happened, and um, I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently, and I wouldn't have. If you could change what happened, would you? Oh, absolutely. I wish he would have killed us instead. Over the last um, 26 months, um, has this been stressful for you? Very stressful. Yes. Have you had a range of emotions? I've had a lot of emotions. Are you trying to... Are you... Do you believe you are the victim here? Um, I don't want to say that I'm a victim because I did not want to disrespect those families that truly are the victims on this. Um, but we did lose a lot. Okay. You've lost everything. We did. In terms of your relationship with your son, how did you think your relationship was? I thought we were pretty close. Um, we would talk, we would, I mean, we did a lot of things together. Um, I trusted him and I felt like I had an open door and he can come to me about anything. I mean, I felt, I felt as a family, we were, we were three of us really close. Okay, you're getting a lot of, no, it's okay. You're getting a lot of redness here. Is that normal? Um, yes, because I'm talking in front of people and my nerves act up. So I get splotchy and I might break out in hives and I apologize. Okay, but you are okay. Yeah, I'm fine. 
Prosecutors say Jennifer Crumbly cared more about her horses than she did about her son's well-being. That she ignored his serious mental health issues. The um, formal allegation is she neglected to exercise reasonable care. That she could have stopped him, but she didn't. Her lawyer, though, told the court that Ethan's parents never knew how deeply their son was disturbed. Never saw those incredibly violent journals. And said they thought he was just, quote, messing around when he told them he saw demons. The crumbly parents, though, they could each get 15 years in prison if they're convicted. And we'll continue to follow it. Coming up next, there are very few among us who can say that they've had a brush with a serial killer, or at least a man who's accused of being a serial killer. But my next guest says she not only survived a debaucherous sex party at Rex Heuerman's home on Long Island, she says she thinks she looked right into the eyes of a woman on the last night alive. It's a Banfield exclusive and it's next. It's like such an unassuming little home, really kind of a blight on the Long Island neighborhood. It's small, it's run down, the roof looks heavy with the weight of unchecked moss. Like any day it might just sort of fall in. And the backyard, I mean, that's just a shit show. It was crystal clear that Rex paid no attention to looking after this place, no attention to detail, which is not the case with at least one person who visited that home, spent time inside that home, saw things, saw details. If you don't know by now, Rex Heuerman is the hulking six foot four, 240 pound architect suspected of being the Long Island serial killer, the man with the nauseating porn search history who is charged with murdering and dumping at least four women. He's got a wife and two adult kids who also all lived inside that rundown home. So what is it like inside there? What might have happened in there? Lorraine Polino was in that home. She says she partied with Rex and his wife and saw things that she now wishes she could change. And she is here with a Banfield exclusive. Lorraine, thank you so much for for being here tonight. I I so appreciate it. Can you just briefly summarize um, what were the circumstances that that brought you inside that home? Oh, we went to the home. Me and my boyfriend, who was a police officer, uh, we went to party with them. And we took a young lady with us to the party. So that's what it was about. It was a party. And when you were inside, um, in that home, partying, did you, did you come upon his wife as a Ellerup or, or either of his adult kids? Or who all was in there? I met her. We met her when we came in. And then I sat with the guys in like a living room area. And she left we, when we went to the bedroom. So when we were finished, I asked her, where were you? You never came to the bedroom. I said, you know, were you afraid of me or something? And she said, no, I'm not really into this. But, um, you know, I'm glad you had fun. I said, thanks. I said, um... But tell me more about yourself. And then she told me, oh, I'm a foreigner too. That's what she said. He brought me here from, the, from my country. 
And I said, wow. I said to her, she said, I'm, I feel happy he's rich. So Can I, I said to her, why don't we go rain? shopping tomorrow? It sounds like that you were there, and I and I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It was it was a long time ago, but it was a it was a swingers sex party. There were all sorts of other people there as well. Did you get a good look um, at at Rex Hurman, and did you witness him um, in any kind of behavior? Uh, did you see him engage in any any sex during that party? It wasn't a lot of people. It was. Me and my boyfriend and Rex and Karen and his wife and Isa. That was it. He smirks a lot. That I noticed. He really does smirk a lot. He rarely laughs, but he smirks a lot. Did, did, you, did you notice him engaging? When you, meant, when you said um, Karen... I should just tell our viewers, I think you mean Karen Vergata. She was a murder victim known as Jane Doe number seven. Yes. And if I, if, I, if I know your story correctly, Lorraine, um, when you were leaving with your boyfriend, yes. you looked up in the window and you saw Karen Vergata, who, someone you believe is Karen Vergata, the, the woman you brought to the party who was staying behind. You saw her up in the, in the window and you said you looked into her eyes and thought she looked frightened. She looked scared. So I told him, I said, you said you spoke to her and she wants to stay because she's sleepy and hungry. He said, yes, she wants to stay. I said, okay, so why is she running outside? Now she's running outside. And he said, oh, you're just watching everything. They're probably playing a game. Let's go home. And we left her there. And that's why I'm doing this because... I feel some sense of responsibility because we left her. Oh, I, I think we've just lost Lorraine's signal. Oh, I'm so unfortunate. My apologies, people. We, this happens on occasion in live television. The signal just, you know, it just ended. But that's Lorraine Polino, and you should know that her lawyer, John Ray, has had some trouble getting the police to um, take his clients. He's got multiple clients who say they've had run-ins with Rex Hewerman, take them seriously. She has a sworn affidavit that she has told of this story where she believes she saw Karen Vergata um, and, and left her there at, at Rex Hewerman's home never to be, to be seen again. Um, and my thanks to Lorraine and apologies that, that the signal broke up. Coming up uh, after this, did the folks at Wheel of Fortune really screw somebody out of $40,000? Because people online right now are losing their minds. But Pat and Vanna say, not so fast. You have 10 seconds to try to tell us what's up there. Good luck. Okay, study the puzzle. What do you think the answer is? And did the contestant nail it or blow it? It kind of all depends on your anatomy. Not kidding. I'm revealing the answer next. The last place that you'd expect a knockdown, drag-out fight is on the show Wheel of Fortune, right? I mean, what is so aggro about vowels? But this is where we are. Uh, only the fight wasn't so much on the show as it was about the show and what the show may have done to a sweet little contestant named Megan Carvale. 
Uh, Megan was toiling away and trying to come up with the answer on Tuesday's final round, and it looked like she actually got it. Or did she? Something orchid. Pony orchid. You might have been overthinking, thinking of a type of orchid. Pink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, wait, hold it. Whoa, back it up, Jack. <laughs> Literally uh, say Jack, because I f- kind of feel like she might have said the answer. Did, did she actually say pink orchid under her breath? Or did she say the words something orchid? It's kind of hard to tell. But I want you to be the judge. So listen really, really carefully. I'm going to play that moment a couple of times and listen if it's pink orchid that she's mumbling or something orchid. Listen. Something orchid. Something orchid. Something orchid. So what do you think? What do you hear? But it don't matter because Pat Sajak said she missed it and she went home without the $40,000 in cash. But in case you're all wound up about it, Megan put the controversy to rest. She fessed up and she admitted this morning. Uh, she said it was something orchid. Yep, she admitted it. She was saying, hmm, something orchid. And still the internet is on her side saying, close enough, give her the money because internet. So, all right, tomorrow, did you ever see Minority Report with Tom Cruise? If you didn't, you should. 2002, uh, it's kind of like a sci-fi. Uh, it was all about pre-crime, like solving crimes before they happen and arresting people before they actually commit them. They got all these, like, police officers and detectives called precogs. It's really cool. And I, I remember when I watched it back in 2002 thinking, never, not a chance. Well, now we're only 30, way, 30 years away from, like, 2054 when this was set. And tomorrow on the show, I'm actually going to show you how close we actually are, how really close we are to being able to solve crimes before they happen. Now, are we going to arrest people before they commit them? I don't think we're yet there with the Constitution, but it does kind of give you pause. If we can use AI to stop crime, like, wow, what am I going to do for a living? Thanks for joining us. Almost next. Hey, everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Thursday. We have breaking news. So what do you say? Let's get after it. Look, we thought it was going to be weeks, but good news. We know what killed the three men that were found frozen in their friend's Kansas City backyard. It's not going to be helpful to the families and their grieving, but at least now they'll know. And there is a remaining danger. We have a reporter in Kansas City who has the details, and we have two big questions. Who is to blame? And are there more people at risk from what killed these three young men. Details ahead. Then, should a parent be criminally responsible if their kid is a school shooter? We are in the court where the prosecution just rested its case against Michigan mom, Jennifer 